play in a moment, but before we do, we're going to take a little bit of time to catch up with Nikki. Um, she's going to join us on Zoom. Uh, as we switch over to Zoom, I just want to encourage you, if you are online and watching us today, it'd be really great if you could like or make a comment so that we know that you're there. It's so great for us to keep track of you that way and know that you're joining us. Hi, Nikki. Welcome to Soul Revival Yarrawarra. Hi. So, welcome, Nikki. Um, given that it's um, Mother's Day... Love it. Given that it's Mother's Day um, today, I thought that uh, we might spend a little yes. bit of time thinking about motherhood and the joys that it is and uh, mm. the trials that it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think yes. those of us who are mothers um, would relate to that. Uh, just So just to, maybe just to start with, you could, if you could remind us um, what your family makeup is. Yes. How many kids have you got? So um, I have three children. Uh Luca, who is 17, Tara, who is 13, and Alana, who is 11. Great. So, that uh, interesting stages and ages. <laughs> when you think back to uh, motherhood yes. um, over the, the years that you've been a mum, yes. what, what would you say one of the most unexpected things about motherhood has been for you? Um, that's a really good question, and I've been thinking about it. I, I don't know. I guess... Um, the unexpected is, I guess, the things that you were thought were going to be hard were easy and the things that you thought would be easy are hard, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yeah. like, you know, when you were thinking about having a baby and it's, you know, like, it's just you like, oh, how am I going to do this? And it just becomes part of your day by day, but it's actually that kind of, as they grow older and more complex, like anything that gets more complex, it, you'd think it would get easier as they get older, but it gets harder because it's more complex. Different things. Yeah, absolutely. Different things get harder. Yeah. I remember thinking that I was going to be yes. like the, I was going to be the disciplinarian parent and much to my surprise, I was the biggest softie <laughs> and Anthony had to fill that role. <laughs> what... what uh, what role do you play? Are you the, the hard, hard line rules person in your um, parenting? So, so, yeah, so really early on and we, we were like whatever, whatever we said goes. So we were always true to our word, which is good because it means you can't make outrageous statements like if, you know, if you don't put that down, then we're never coming back to the shop. Like, you, so it, it tapers what you could do. So, um, and I, I figured that out really early on. So a good example, so that's my, I was like, I, whatever I say goes. And so, for example, when Tara was young, she must have been two or three and it was right before Christmas photos and Cuz had gone and got a terrible haircut, the worst haircut. Or maybe you'd given Luca a, haircut anyway there was a bad haircut involved and it was just before Christmas photos and she was standing up in the bath and I said if you don't sit down I'm gonna get dad to take you for a haircut which she knew that meant like short back and side, like a bad haircut and I remember in my mind going please sit down otherwise I'm gonna have to give you the most horrendous haircut because I would have I would have followed through on it so which is, uh, like, I guess people would look at me and go, oh, I'm so free-spirited and fun. My children would not agree. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, those That's bad okay. parenting moments? I, I remember one of mine where we were about to 
we were getting ready to go to church and um, and I left the kids. I think Beth was probably maybe two. She was walking. I left the kids in the lounge room while I ran around and did something and um, I <laughs> came in ready to go to church and there'd been a green um, permanent marker on the coffee table and Beth had drawn all over her face. Oh, no, Jake had drawn all over his face with permanent marker and as I walked in the room, Beth... <laughs> realised she was <laughs> going to miss out, so she quickly grabbed it and drew all over her face and uh, I made them go to church like that. Because <laughs> there was no time to get it uh, off. Yeah. Yeah, perfect parenting moment. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. No, uh, I would have done that. Mm. Uh, what, during, uh, there's different sorts of stages, as you say, that are easier and harder. Um, reflecting back on some of the times where you were you know, a really busy mum, probably with younger kids, what would you um, say were, were the important ways that you uh, maintained your spiritual life and growth in, in that midst of busyness that's so easy to be distracted by everything? I, I think it was um, really having um, touchstones in my life, and by that I mean people. So I had, she's still a really good friend of mine, um, my best friend although I don't know if 43 can have a best friend but I do um, and so we had kids at the same time together both Christians and so we were really we were in it together so I had I, I had someone that I could pray with and we were in Bible study together and then I was put in a Bible study with, with women of all different ages and stages parents not parents and it was really I learned so much about how parenting and not and Christian life is a journey and they really held me when I couldn't hold myself up they held my child a lot all of my children because they just loved babies and um yeah they they helped me see the importance of time with God and they really kept they really kept me um yeah they really kept me strong yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing to be doing motherhood in the midst of a community, isn't it? And um, and it's not only mums; it's like those mother figures oh. in our lives too, who nurture us and help us to continue yeah. to grow. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for your reflections, Nikki. Yeah. Um, we might take some time now to pray. So Nikki's going to pray for us. Thank you. We'll hand over to you. No problem. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father. We thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that while we may not be able to meet together physically, that we are able to meet together virtually and still be a part of your great community and kingdom. Lord, we pray for our frontline workers during this COVID time. We think of doctors, nurses, cleaners, teachers and other essential workers. We thank you for their hard work and commitment, for the time that they take each day to go out of their homes and put themselves in danger's way. Lord, we ask you that you would keep them strong and safe. We pray that they would know your strength and comfort during this difficult time. Lord, we also pray for the medical practitioners uh, who are looking uh, for um, vaccine and treatments for this virus. We pray that you would uh, give them wisdom and strength during this time and that there would be a cure for this, not a cure, a vaccine for this disease soon. 
Lord, as today's Mother's Day, we think of those for whom today may not be the day of celebration that it is for most, but it can be a day of sadness, grief and loss. We pray for those people, Lord. We ask that you would comfort them and heal their hearts. We would ask that you would help us as your family to love those who are hurting and suffering, not just today, but every day. Lord, we also pray for our children who have gone through so much during this challenging time. We thank you uh, for their resilience uh, and for their ability to adapt to these changing times. Help us to provide answers to their questions, comfort in their fear, and for us to give them grace when they are frustrated. Our children would look to you at Soul Revival. We thank you for their willingness and enthusiasm to embrace these new gatherings. We thank you for their newly acquired technical skills. We pray, please be with them, Lord, as they continue to lead us from afar. Give them strength and comfort, and we thank you for their service to us as a community. We pray for our political leaders, Lord. They are making important and challenging decisions at this time. Lead them, Lord. Give them wisdom and strength. Show them the way to lead us through this crisis with strength, kindness and love. Finally, Lord, we thank you for Jesus who changes everything, who leads us by his perfect example, who teaches us by his word, who saves us from our sin through his blood and death on the cross. Amen. We're going to do um, the, the no most problem. important thing that we do uh, when we're at Soul Revival, and that's read the Bible. So if you might like to grab your Bibles out, uh, the words will also be on the screen. We're reading from Daniel 6 today, and over this weekend we've got sermons on Daniel 6 uh, here today. And if you're interested in the sermons on Daniel 3, you can tune into one of our Kirawi gatherings and you'll be able to hear Paul preach on Daniel 3. Um, in the Bible studies this week, we looked at both Daniel 3 and 6. So the reading today is Daniel 6, starting at verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to, the, to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. 
in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. Chapter 6, and you might be wondering, what, what, what happened? Did something, like, did I go into like a, a COVID coma and, and missed a whole chunk of the series? No, you haven't. Uh, what's actually happening is that because chapter 3 and chapter 6 really mirror each other, this whole weekend we're looking at chapters 3 and 6. So Saturday night, Paul uh, shared with us from chapter 3, and he's doing that across all our Kiroi gatherings today as well. And I'm going to look at chapter 6. So I encourage you to have a look at Paul's sermon as well when you get a chance and see how these two mirror one another and how closely connected they are. And uh, we're going to have a look at chapter 6, and I'm really excited about that. So I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're going to jump into this. So let's pray. Our dear gracious God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity we have now to dive into your word, to reflect on your word, and to ponder what you might be wanting to teach us through your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in chapter 6, and I'm really excited about it, but uh, as we've been talking about parenting and, and mothers and all those sorts of things this weekend, I was thinking of a parent fail that we had once. Uh, we were I was the assistant minister at uh, Helensburg Anglican for a bit, and when we first went there, I think we were in the first year or the second year, I can't remember, but I was sharing, uh, someone asked me about parenting and how we were going and they were uh, looking at becoming parents themselves and thinking through what it is to, you know, look after your kids and care for them and, you know, control, not control, but, you know, kind of keep some sort of control over what's going on in life. And while sharing little things that I'd heard and I just finished the conversation and then Christine came in and said, we've lost Tobias. I don't know where he is. And so we spent the next five minutes Probably five minutes, I felt like 10 or 15, uh, looking for him everywhere. Now, we live right next door to the church, so we search there, we search everywhere. And after searching everywhere, we, we heard this honking from the car park, like someone was on the horn in a car. We're like, what is going on? Anyway, we go out there and we find him in our car honking the horn. Someone had somehow, he'd somehow managed to slip through the gate when someone had opened it, got into our car, 
because we really never used to lock our car while we were down there, and was in the car, playing around in the car and playing on the horn. And now the person I was talking to about parenting is kind of just giving me like the kind of thumbs up, like, good job. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, no, I've got nothing. I've, I'm totally, when it comes to parenting, the most control I have is the fact that I'm actually out of control. I don't know if that's control at all, but, it, you know, as a parent, sometimes I feel like I'm in control of the situations, but that was a great example of a time when I wasn't. Now, when we get to chapter six, we actually find that power and control have actually shifted. See, chapter two, where we looked at last week, King Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, was in power. He was ruling and controlling the whole Babylonian empire. Now, he not only is he not king, but the king after him, the Babylonian king after him is now gone. And we actually have a new king, King Darius, who's... Uh, a, He's a Mede, he's a Persian, and there's a whole new system, a whole new empire, a whole new king come into power and control. So there's been, been a big shift in the power and control of the place where Daniel and his friends find themselves in exile. Now, we see that one of the things that King Darius does is actually very, very clever in terms of political kind of nous or, or, um, or thinking because he appoints 120 satraps and three administrators to look after the entire empire, to look after everything that he's just, I guess, taken over. And what's really clever about that is that a lot of these men would have been people who were already serving under the previous leadership. Now, in amongst all that, we see Daniel, who in chapter 5, which we'll look at uh, 4 and 5 next week, actually in chapter 5 was in the, on the margins. He wasn't really in that sort of leadership realm like we saw him moving towards in chapter 2. He actually was pushed to the margins and was almost forgotten about. But all of a sudden we see him rise to prominence and we see him rise in such a way that is quite astounding. Because Darius sees something in Daniel. You have a look in your Bibles, make sure you've got them open there so you can see what we're talking about. Because in chapter 6, in the first few verses, we see why Darius wants Daniel as his one of his, I guess his right-hand man because he's looking at putting Daniel above these satraps and these administrators, almost like a prime minister of the estate, of the, the empire. And here is what Darius sees in Daniel. And we find out what it is because those who are trying to plot against him, which we'll get to in a minute, actually mention this. Verse 4, we see that that, he, uh, that they couldn't find any corruption in him. He wasn't corrupt. He wasn't taking kickbacks or sort of money under the table. None of those sorts of things. Neither, uh, not only was he not a corrupt person, but he was actually trustworthy and he was not negligent. He was actually a diligent worker. In fact, he was the person that Darius wanted to further his kingdom. See, the end of verse, uh, verse, three, uh, verse 2 these satraps and, and administrators were actually put there so that the king wouldn't suffer loss. Daniel worked so hard for the king that the king wouldn't lose anything, that he'd actually gain. And it's really important because the king wants someone he can trust who's not after his own gain, after his own self-interest, but really looking for uh, the best interest for the, the king and his kingdom. In fact, what we see that Daniel is actually someone who is actually after the peace of the kingdom and the city. And in fact, in Daniel, we actually see someone who really, I guess, models the way that Peter talks about how Christians are to live in this world. 
See, in 2 Peter, uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 11 and 12, Peter talks about how we are to live wisely. We are to, to live in a way where we, are not we can't be accused of doing wrong, but that our good deeds are seen and that people glorify God because of the way that we act, because of the way that we work for the peace of the city that we're in. And so Daniel models this really, really well for us. And so as Daniel is doing this and living this way, Darius sees that and says, I want you, I'm going to promote you. I want you to, to be right up there. I want you to be my right-hand man. Now, I don't know what happens in your workplace or what you've seen in workplaces, but sometimes when there's a promotion, there's a party or people go out for drinks to celebrate afterwards or something happens where there's some sort of celebration. But for Daniel, there's no celebration. There's no uh, promotion party. There's no cake. There's no drinks. There's nothing. In fact, what we find is that those who are passed over for the role, those who are underneath Daniel, they actually get jealous. They get jealous of Daniel in such an amazingly horrible way. I think I can say that because it's, it's, it's not just... It's not that just they, they're jealous because he's got the role. They actually go to the ends where they actually want him removed. But it's not just removed from the position. It's like removed, 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 like completely removed, like kind of removed. They want him dead. That is how jealous they are. They want bad of him. I don't know if you've ever felt so angry or frustrated or jealous of somebody that you've wanted, some, you've wanted harm to come to another person. Like that, that is really a deep, deep, deep-centered hatred for someone to be at that point. And yet here are these officials, these leaders who are feeling this way towards Daniel. Their jealousy is actually driving them to a point where they actually want him dead, totally and utterly removed. And so they make a plot. And we've already seen that the type of man that Daniel is. So they look at his life and the way that he leads and they see there's nothing that they can find. He doesn't take anything under, like any kind of money under the table. He doesn't take any kickback. So we can't get him on that. He works really hard. He's a bang up guy. Like, what are we going to do? And so they plot to use his faith against him. They know that Daniel is a man who relies on God and trusts in God. And so they, they plot to use that against him. And so what they do is that they race to the king and they petition him to make a law that bans or outlaws any prayer or asking of help, not just to God, but to any God. That if you want to pray or ask for help, you have to pray and ask the help of King Darius. Now, that sounds kind of, you know, as a, as a king who's ruling an empire that's now new, it kind of sounds like a good way to kind of get things moving so that people look to you as their ruler, as their leader, as their all-powerful one. And they, these satraps and administrators, they rush this through. They kind of hurry it through. They don't let Darius ponder too much about it. They don't let Darius think about the consequences of what could happen with this law. And so he signs it and off they go. And it's at this point we see one of these points where there is a mirror between chapters 3 and chapter 6. See, both, six, uh, both 3 and 6, we find that they start off with a king issuing a, a law. It's almost like an arrogant law, really, that sets the king up against God. In both chapters, we see this taking place. 
But, and we see that the failure to, to adhere to this law, to obey this law, will result in death. Chapter 3, it's the fiery furnace. Here, it's the lion's den. In both, and in both chapters, such so as 3 and 6, we see that it's the administrators and the other leaders who actually are conspiring against one of the exiles, one of God's people, one of the people who are faithful to God. It's Daniel's three friends in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here, it's Daniel. But these two chapters together show us that the pressure for these exiles to live in a particular way, to conform, to be like those who are in power, to be like the Babylonians, to be like all those around them, was immense. See, chapter 3, the pressure for them is actually to do something that God said, do not do. God commanded them not to worship other idols, and that's what we find in chapter 3. And in chapter 6, we see that the law, if it's obeyed, it actually breaks something that God said that we should do. And so we find these two things taking place. And I think these things happen for us now, even today. As we live as Christians in this world, we face these same pressures to conform. To conform to, to, to these things we call sins, which are things that we do wrong in the eyes of God. And those things here in chapters 3 and 6 are the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Now what that means is commissions are the things that we do, the sins we do, and the omissions are the things that we don't do, that we should do. And so the pressure for the exiles to sin against God in these ways is, is high. They face extreme pressure. And I think, if I, I hope you are in agreement with me, that we face similar sort of pressures still today. And so we see that these two chapters mirror each other really well. And so this law is passed and King Darius signs off on it. And we see that it's published and it goes out to the whole land. Now, what will Daniel do in this situation? Will he conform? Will he conform his faith? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm thinking, if this was happening to us here, that I couldn't pray to God, I think what I, you know, my first thing comes to my mind would be I would find somewhere quiet where I can't be seen and pray. Yes, it's, you know, I'm disobeying the law, but I'm doing it where no one can see me. But what does Daniel do? Chapter, if you have a look at chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Now Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened to Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to God just as he had done before. See what Daniel, he goes and finds an open window and prays. Now, it's not because he's, do, he's doing that to, I guess, kind of parade that he's breaking the law, to show everybody his disobedience. It's not that at all. This is what he's always done. See, Daniel's life was a life that was punctuated with prayer. He would pray in the morning, he would pray in the middle of the day, and he would pray at night. He was a man who really typified what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, where we are to pray on all occasions. See, Daniel is not just praying because of what's happened. He's praying because that's what he always does. He trusts himself to God. He trusts his life to God. He asks God for help. He says, God, you are the one who is in control of everything, even my life. And so therefore, I'm coming to you to ask you for the help that I need, for the grace and the mercy that I need each day to get through. This is what he did every day, and this day was no different. 
Now he stood there and he faced Jerusalem. And that's important because Jerusalem symbolized the place where God was with his people. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, it was a, a symbol of God's presence with his people. And so Daniel is facing Jerusalem, the very presence of God. And as he does this, we see that he prays as he has always done. And so when we look through verses six, uh, sorry, 11 through to 16, and these satraps and the administrators actually find Daniel at prayer, it's not like they're walking around, sneaking behind doors and hiding in shadows, waiting to try and catch him up. They know what he's going to do. They know that he's going to pray because that is what he always does. You could almost set your watch to it. And so they catch him in the act, standing in his window, facing Jerusalem, praying as he always does. And they take this news back to the king. Now, when these administrators, these leaders go back to the king, they're very clever in what they do. Because they don't run back like a kid telling, like fibbing on another kid, you know, kind of telling on, on another kid for what they've done. They don't run back and go, oh, sir, sir, do you see what, see what Daniel did? Do you see what he did? It's not that at all. They come back and they go, now, King Darius, do you remember the law that you made? You know, the one where uh, everyone needs to pray to you and not to any other gods. You know, that one that's unbreakable. And we see that Darius, yes, I know it's, it is unbreakable because of uh, the type of law it is. It's the, the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be repealed. It cannot be broken. It cannot be reversed. I know the law. I made the law. That's the law. And these administrators, these leaders, they go, well, you know, Daniel, well, he's not actually respecting you and showing you the, uh, the respect that, that you deserve. He's actually disobeying you and actually he's praying to his God. Now, we know from this story that Darius really did love Daniel as a friend, as, a, as, as a someone who he was close to. And when he hears this, it's almost like his heart just drops, it sinks. In fact, we see that he actually does all he can. In verse 14, when, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, made every effort he could until sundown to save him. He did everything he possibly could, looked at every loophole, tried to, to make sure that there wasn't a T crossed or an I dotted or something that was out of place or a typo where it could be revoked. But there was nothing. This is a law that cannot be reversed, that cannot be repealed, that cannot be removed. And so we see that because of this law, that Daniel is sent to the lion's den as punishment for his disobedience to God. And as Daniel is taken to this lion's den and, and he goes, uh, the king goes with Daniel, we see that this mighty, powerful king who's in control of all things actually isn't in control at all. He actually has no power to reverse this law. He has no control over the situation. Very similar to the mirror of this chapter in chapter 3. Where there is no power of anyone to save Daniel's three friends. And the king, King Darius here, has no power to save Daniel. In fact, we see how much his fate is sealed in the words that come next. Because as the king is there with Daniel, he says these words to him. He says, may your God, 
This is King Darius to Daniel. He says, may your God whom you serve continually rescue, rescue you. And then what we see is there is a stone in verse 17 that is rolled across the entrance of this den. A den's kind of like a cave or something's been carved into the rock. This stone is rolled across and it is sealed with the, the ring of the king and of the nobles. No one can now save Daniel. His fate, quite literally, is sealed. Just like that, 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 uh, that rock across the front. He is, he's locked in there. And there is nothing that he can do. Now, while Daniel's in there, we're told that Darius, this great and powerful king who's in control of such a, a vast empire, actually can't even, can't even control his feelings in this situation because we see that he goes home. And what does he do? He says, the, re- the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. See, that night the king went without because of his great distress for what would happen to Daniel. But we find in verse 19 that at first light of dawn, like as soon as the, the, the sun was like a, just a pinprick of light on the horizon, he was up and racing towards the lion's den. He orders the stone to be rolled away and what does he see? Well, what does he say? When the, the stone has been rolled away, he calls out to Daniel. He says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue from the lion's den? And to his surprise, he hears these words from Daniel, where he says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. And we see that the king is overjoyed and orders Daniel to be brought out. Daniel has been rescued, he's been saved. And just to, to prove that this was a, a real miracle that had happened, that these, the, the mouths of the lions were truly and utterly shut, that they weren't sick, they didn't get COVID or something or some flu or whatever and they didn't feel like eating or they, they'd had a big meal beforehand and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't eat Daniel because they were too full. We see that as soon as Daniel is brought out, that those who conspired against him, those who plotted against Daniel, are thrown into the lion's den. And before they, their feet even hit the ground, they are devoured. God had rescued, God had saved Daniel. He'd saved him from those, those jaws, those teeth of the lion. Now, if you're sitting there and listening to this story, you might start to think that this story sounds very familiar. And you wouldn't be wrong in thinking that. Because the reason why the stories that we find here in Daniel are here is because they are here to point us to something else. The point of these stories are not the characters, but the point is what they point to. See, Daniel, in this story in chapter 6, is actually pointing to a Daniel who is far greater than he is. Daniel, this story of Daniel is really just a shadow of the great Daniel to come. 
that one who will come down from heaven, whose name is Jesus, who will live such a life where he is not corrupt. He doesn't take any kickbacks. He serves his God, our God, with his whole heart. And he seeks the peace of God's kingdom in this world and the peace in the lives of those who trust him. And he started to get people starting to follow him and leaders got jealous of him. And because they could find nothing about his character to bring a charge against him, they sought other things. And they too went to the king of the day, the one who was in leadership over the nation and brought false charges against Jesus. This innocent man who would not go to a fiery furnace or to a lion's den, but would go to a cross and be executed like a thief, like a murderer, an innocent man. Now, when he dies, we, we are told that his body is put not into a lion's den, but into a, a tomb, which would have been carved out of stone, out of the rock face. And what do we find? We find a rock that is rolled across in front of it and it is sealed shut. The story continues on because three days later, when, his, uh, when, when Mary and the women go to his tomb, at, funnily enough, at dawn, at first light, they find that the stone has been rolled away that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. See, Jesus dies not because he's guilty, but because we are guilty. Because we, we, we sin against God, we sin against Jesus when we do the things that we shouldn't do, things that we're told not to do by Jesus, by God, those sins of commission, the things that we do that actually do harm to other people and don't bring glory to God. But not just those, but the things that we know that we should do that we don't do. Those things when we should encourage other people, say words of encouragement and love and build other people up, but we let those moments go. We're, or where we're to extend that hand of love or that, that smile as we walk through the shops, just to, to bring a bit of light to another person's day. Those things that we do and the things that we don't do are piled onto Jesus so that we don't have to pay them. That the innocent man pays them for us. And so that when he dies and he's put into that tomb and that stone is rolled away, we find that because Jesus is alive, not only has our debt been paid, but we also understand that we have also been saved. Because Jesus died for us so that we not only have our sins forgiven, so, but also so that we who trust and put our faith in him, who believe in him wholeheartedly, with every fibre of our being, will, will be saved meaning that, that we will, when we die, that we will not be buried and stay dead, but we will actually rise and we will be in that new kingdom, the kingdom of God. That we will live with our King Jesus forever. 
and he will rule. In fact, the way that King Darius finishes this chapter is pointing to that. So the point of this chapter of Daniel is to talk about uh, how, uh, to point to the fact that, that we have been, uh, that we are waiting to be saved, but also to be reminded that we already have been saved. So we are waiting for that final day when Jesus will return or we die and we go to be with him forever, that final day of salvation. But we also need to remember that we have already been saved because Jesus has died and risen. We are saved people now and we will know it in all its fullness on that day. And this is what King Darius says. He says this as he makes this decree to all the nations. He says, I issue a decree to every part of my kingdom People must fear and and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. See, that is the salvation that is to come. And here is the salvation that has happened for Daniel. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And he has rescued you and me from the power, from the clutches of sin and death. That we need not fear it anymore. That our God, who sent his son Jesus, is in total control. He is not powerless to defeat these things. He is not powerless to save. See, King Darius was powerless. He didn't have the authority or the control to be able to save Daniel, but God did and God does. Now, when uh, it comes to parenting, and we like to think that we're in control as parents all the time. Even if you're not a parent, you, you will think there are areas of your life where you're in control of, whether it's the state of your house, whether it's uh, what you do from day to day, where you drive, what you do each day. You might feel that you're in control of your life and you have a plan and you are going that way. But I tell you this, I don't think any of us planned for 2020 to go the way that it's going. Not a single one of us. None of us planned for this to happen. This has been out of our control. This is a moment where we realise that we don't have control of all things. We don't even have, we don't have control of our own lives. But God does. This is a great time for us to reflect on these stories of Daniel so that we may be reminded of the God who is all-powerful and in control of all things and that he is the God who saves. And he does that through his son, Jesus. And so my hope and prayer for us this week as we think through chapters 3 and chapter 6 as we just looked at is that we will look back to the fact that we've been saved by Jesus and that that will help us to look forward with great joy and with great confidence knowing that we will be saved in the future. And two, that we will be people who bookend our days in prayer, that our lives are punctuated by prayer because we are so reliant in God, on God who is in control of all things, that we plead with him and we ask him for help and mercy and grace to get through each and every day. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to hand back over to Zach and we're going to sing. So let me pray. 
Dear gracious God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you are, in a, uh, you are the God who is in control. Father, even when we feel like we are out of control and that we are powerless to stop the things that are going on around us, Father, help us to trust in you, to put our faith in you, to rely on you, to call out to you for help, for mercy, for grace to get through each day knowing that you are in control even when we are not. Father, I pray for any of us this Mother's Day that, uh, that are feeling lonely or sad or feeling disconnected from their family and their loved ones. Father, I pray that we would come to you asking for this grace that you would comfort us and that we, through Jesus, that we would know this peace that passes all understanding. That you would keep our hearts in the joy and the knowledge that we are saved and will be saved. That you are the God of Daniel and you are our God too. And you are the God who is mighty to save. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Soul Revival Church podcast. Just a reminder, if you want to watch any of these services that we hold live, you can go to soulrevivalchurch.com and you can see all the gatherings up the top of the page. You can choose any one you wish. It can be on Friday, Saturday or Sunday. Thanks again and one way. Music is OK by Ixon.